Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Spike Cohen. Spike is a successful business owner, libertarian activist, and media figure. As the 2020 Libertarian Party candidate for vice president, coming in third place in the 2020 election, Spike traveled across the nation by plane and bus and met tens of thousands of Americans to share the message of liberty with them. Spike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on, man. I have um, always been one of the more radical libertarians. I guess when I, in my minarchist days, I was very, very minarchist, and it didn't take me long after becoming involved to switch over to the Murray Rothbard School of Libertarianism. So I'm pretty hardcore. You know, the campaign back in 2020 took some criticism for not being hardcore enough. I, I would just want to say that I was reasonably happy with it as kind of a return to libertarian principles. But it does bring up a, a good question, which is, it seemed like Americans were starving for some sort of really radical message in 2016 and in 2020. 2016, they attached themselves to Donald Trump, whose message wasn't all that radical. It just really pushed back on political correctness. What, what do you think about where the party has to go as far as not scaring away new voters, but also not giving them some watered-down, middle-of-the-road, not-really-libertarian message. Right. So I think what's important here is looking at why people voted for Donald Trump, which is really the same story of why they voted for Barack Obama. It, and it's that Americans are becoming increasingly frustrated with the status quo and the establishment in this country. And both times when they voted for Obama, because there were a tremendous number of swing voters that voted Obama and then voted Trump. When you look at those voters in particular, the ones who aren't just always going to vote Democrat, always going to vote Republicans, the one who either will swing their vote, vote independent, or just not vote at all, which is the vast majority of eligible voters in, in one of those three camps. The reason they voted for Trump and also for Obama was because they were sick of what they perceived to be the status quo. The problem is 
the media that they receive, the information they receive has their 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 range of ideas that they hear in such a, a small box that a Donald Trump or an Obama, who you and I and, and other libertarians can recognize are really just different flavors of the same, you know, kind of left uh, left of center or right of center authoritarianism that make up the Republican and Democratic parties with just a little bit of different flair to it. It looks to them like, you know, being wildly outside of what they've ever heard before and, you know, a, a great departure from the establishment. And obviously they used a lot of anti-establishment rhetoric, but the fact is that's what they were drawn to. They, they were drawn to this idea that there was going to be change. I mean, literally, Obama literally said hope and change. It was, you know, seizing on their hope and their desire for change. And, and Trump did the same thing in, in, in his way as well. Going to your question about, you know, making sure that we're not scaring off voters, but also not being milk toast. What's interesting is that that's the false dichotomy that we're given within the parties, that we have to pick either uh, relatable but milk toast or, you know, angry and off-putting off but principled. And the reality is not only do we not have to make a choice between that, but it doesn't make any sense. You can't truly be relatable if you aren't also bold, right? Like it, it, no one's going to want to be drawn to you, especially if they know your likelihood of winning is pretty low. If you aren't inspiring them, you know, no one wants to rally behind someone going, hey, everyone, I'm not likely to win, but I'm running because I want to make a marginal change to the tax code. Like it, it, that's that's not going to get them out of bed. That's not going to get them excited. And on the, in the other side, you know, it's great to have principles. It's great to have, you know, a solid belief system and a philosophy. But if you don't have a good praxis of presenting that to others, then what good is it? You, it's, it's all light with no heat. And if, you know, at this point, I think that we need to look at the fact that the best way to do this is to be both relatable and principled. And the, there's a very simple way of doing that. Listen to what they're saying. Meet them where they are in their spaces, but also in their concerns. We have the best answers. So we don't have to come to them and tell them what we're going to do. Listen to what they're worried about. And then we can tell them how we're going to fix the problems that they're facing in that thing. Because we know that the answer to all those things is to get government out of it. So, you know, if we start by empathizing with them, then we can we can take that next step of presenting our, our bold principled platform. The, the last thing I want to say on that is... Um, you know, we definitely got a lot of criticism and I, I think some wasn't deserved. Some of it was deserved. I think there were certainly certain things that came out of the campaign that I wasn't a fan of when it happened. But I, I will say it doesn't get much bolder or, or principled in terms of what our actual plat policy platform was. It was basically the most radical interpretation of the Libertarian Party platform. Uh, I'm not going to say that that Joe is an anarchist. I am, but I'm not going to say she is. But I will say she never said she wanted government to do anything. She just kept saying all the stuff she didn't want them to do. But no, I, I think that, you know, we need to meet people where they are and recognize that people are just sick of the status quo and they, they want to see someone who has a bold alternative to it, but who is also relatable and, and, and relates to them and, and meets them where they are. Yeah, and I want to get on to your work going forward in the coming year. But the only other thing I'd say about the campaign that I noticed right away, and here's something about me, I never listen to politicians' speeches, not even ours. <laughs> so I go and read the transcripts. So I read her 
acceptance speech transcript. This was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in the uh, mid early to mid 2000s was all of a sudden the speech transcripts were available right after the speech. And all that political writing I did after 2007, I never listened to a single speech. Anyway, so I was just <laughs> looking at the facts and like, here's a difference when, when we were saying, oh, Donald Trump wasn't all that radical. And I generally give him credit for the foreign policy he had as far as it went, which was, we're just not going to be gas pedal all the way down. We're going to keep spending too much on the military, but we're not going to use it at every opportunity. Okay, I'll give him credit for that. What was Joe Jorgensen's and your platform? Bring the troops home. That's not the same as just not starting a war. Bring them home, <laughs> discharge them from the military, and give the money back to the people from whom it's being extracted. That's a very radical message, and it's actually the Ron Paul message, and that's how I got so involved in politics. The Ron Paul campaign back in 2008, compared to the Bob Barr campaign of that year on the Libertarian Party, we had kind of lost our way. Your platform sounded very much the same in, in just about every respect. And Donald Trump, by comparison, he says he's never going to touch any of the entitlements, Social Security or Medicare. Okay, there's a third of the federal government. He said he had to rebuild the military. I mean, every Republican since I've been alive has been rebuilding the military. Now, when the Democrat president is in, the spending keeps going up every year, but somehow it still needs to be rebuilt. The great thing about Trump is he, he did go off the script in one of his speeches in 2020, he actually said, it's been rebuilt. We've rebuilt the military. I said, oh, great. So spending's going down next year, right? No, absolutely not. So, you know, you don't cut we, the military. Now we have to re-rebuild. Yeah, yeah. re-rebuild, re <laughs> right. <laughs> and so if you don't cut the military, you don't cut entitlements. And he says he deregulated, but uh, gone are these the idea that we should get rid of some of these agencies. I mean, you're really not going to get a radical change. So Maybe that's a good segue into the work you're doing. After the campaign was over, you didn't stop working on the message. You went out to local chapters, activists, people running in state parties and work with them. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and what it involves and what you heard out there? Absolutely. So I, I need to have a little bit of a pretext here as to, or a little bit of, I, I guess, uh, a little bit of, of intro as to what started all of this. When I ran for the vice presidential nomination, I didn't actually think I was going to get it. I ran to win. I mean, I called, you know, hundreds of delegates. I, I, I went out to conventions. I did all the things that one would do to win because I don't do anything without running to win. But I expected that a more prominent name, someone that was more well-known, someone that had already, you know, spent years making connections like a Larry Sharp or someone like that would end up getting it. The reason I got into the race initially was I wanted to show people the ways that we could actually spread the message of liberty. So like one of the first things that I did when I when I announced that I was running was I went on a door knocking campaign with Jacob Hornberger in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. We went to housing projects, places where we were told, oh, they all just live off the government. They don't want to hear about it. We went there and we heard that they wanted to occupational licensing laws or at least greatly reform them. They wanted to end the war on drugs. They wanted to end and, and reform policing through things like ending qualified immunity. Like we heard, and every single one of them, when we'd ask, you know, do you want to live in housing and assistance? And they'd say, no, we don't want to live this way. We want to be able to grow our businesses. But, oh, civil asset forfeiture, that was another big one. They said, the police just keep coming and taking our money and taking our, you know, my lawnmower. 
because I didn't have a business license. I didn't even get cited. They just took it. And so I did these things to show libertarians, this is what we need to be doing. We need to go talk to the normies. We need to go talk to people that we've been told are, are not the least bit receptive to our message. And, you know, here is how we can meet people where they are. And, and that was really the purpose. And I expected the party to go, yes, that sounds good, Spike. We should do that. In fact, why don't you help us? With and now if you'll excuse us, we're going to go decide who we want to be our vice presidential candidate. And then that, then they picked me. And so when they, and, and I, I knew by about the beginning of May that it was pretty solid that I was going to get picked at that point. But up until then, I, I didn't really know until about the last month. And so once I realized that I was going to get the nomination, and then obviously once I did get the nomination, I said, okay, this is just the beginning. If they want me, then they're going to get more than they bargained for. I'm not just going to do this run. This is going to be the beginning. So I am running to, you know, when I was running for VP, yes, I'm running for VP. I'm running to get Joe Jorgensen as many votes as she possibly can. But I was also making connections across the country. I visited 35 states. I talked with multiple people in other states. And I was building the connections to do what I started doing this year, which is looking at where we are most successful, looking at and, and how we can magnify that and expand upon that, look at where our biggest weaknesses are, or actually worse than our weaknesses, look where we aren't even addressing, not even having a weakness, just not even present, and find out where we can grow there. And then look at our weaknesses and see how we can fix and address those. And that started with the work I've been doing across the country this year. The bulk of what I've been doing has been centered around building activism within the communities that I'm going to, within the neighborhoods I'm going to, both within the state and local libertarian affiliates and other third-party groups, other, when I say third-party, I mean like other nonprofit groups and other politically oriented groups and things like that. Um, also doing training for candidates. You know, we have the best ideas, we have the best philosophy, we don't always have the best messaging. And that's a, that's a very specific if someone doesn't have a background in sales, if someone doesn't have a background in in you know running a, a business or doing marketing or anything like that, that's a tough one. It's not something that always naturally comes to people. And so I've been doing a lot of that because my background is in you know running a business and in sales and marketing. So I, I've been help, I'm helping them with that, talking with them about how to you know campaign, how to grow your local affiliate, how to run your your candidacy, or how to effectively message as a candidate. So I've been doing a lot of that, and increasingly. I'm doing more and more media stuff, being on uh, national news, being on, uh, uh, referenced in op-eds and things like that, writing op-eds across the country, doing radio interviews, doing podcasts and things like this. So it's been a very, very busy year, put it that way. And we're just getting started. You've got quite a schedule starting right after uh, the new year where you're <laughs> going to go from, I can see a, a number of different state parties and and other libertarian oriented events is it different in every place where the opportunities might be to attract people like let's say you're going to the libertarian party of alabama on april 1st and then you're going to be at the libertarian party of wisconsin on april 29th and you've got one in between there but i think everybody might recognize that those are two very different places is there a different strategy for those i mean are there different demographics you you tell each candidate to go after so first of all for those who are that needs to be updated on the site so for those who are uh marking their calendars for me coming to alabama that's actually going to be now in i think either february 27th or 28th they've they've ended up moving it but all that to say with alabama what there is 
a lot of every area is unique. Every place I go to is unique in its own way, in terms of what it needs, what the what what people are concerned about there, and it's everything from the people that are there to the the laws that are in place there to you know the, the demographics like economic demographics you know the the level of wealth if it's a poorer area they're going to be more concerned with things that are causing them to be in poverty if it's a wealthier area they're going to be more concerned about you know taxes and things like that so it, it kind of changes from area to area but there's obviously significant overlap you know the reality is that when it comes to things like healthcare, when it comes to things like inflation, when it comes to things like housing, when it comes to things like, you know, concerns about foreign policy and things like that, that's kind of universal, especially the inflation one right now. Everyone's feeling inflation. So, you know, from place to place, there is some difference. And, and, and this is the beauty of libertarianism, Tom. You know, we don't have to have this centralized top-down plan. The best way to do things is at the local decentralized level. Not only is it the best way to come up with a, you know, a, a voluntary, peaceful way of building a consensus, but it's the most responsive way to do things. You know, it's not just the most moral way to do it. It's the way that works the best as well. So, you know, I... I Every place I go to, especially if I'm going there for the first time, I spend a lot of my time, I try to spend most of my time listening, asking questions, and then listening to the answers, asking follow-up questions, and then listening to those answers so that I can find out as much as I can in as short a time as I, as I have there to find out what is needed here. What are the things that people are worried about so that I can tailor the messaging if i'm being brought in to you know give a speech about something tailor the messaging for that a, a perfect example of this and this isn't maybe locally based but it is based on a, a specific group you know we ran like you said on ending the wars bringing the troops home drastically cutting the military you know making massive cuts to the military and possibly addressing whether we even need a standing military at all the founders certainly didn't think we did and so but that message was the most well-received by active-duty troops and veterans. Here we are talking about scrapping the VA, scrapping the, the Department of Defense, any, or, or at least greatly reducing the Department of Defense, scrapping all of the wars overseas, bringing all of the troops home. And it was the best received by the people there. Now, it wasn't just because they recognize that something's wrong. It's because of how we messaged it. We centered it on the fact that they were being used as cannon fodder and that that needed to end so that they could live their lives here where they belonged. And that's just a perfect example of how tailoring your message to the needs and the concerns of the people you're talking to can turn something that might seem like, you know, usually, you know, the, the political outside of our party, anyway, the, the political, I guess, the school of thought, the standard school of thought would be, well, you can't talk about ending the wars and bringing the troops home to the troops. That's how they pay their salary, you know, that's their <laughs> salary or whatever. But the reality is, if you present it the right way, they're going to recognize better than anyone else that, you know, that that needs to be done. Now, if I go and say, you're a bunch of baby murderers and welfare queens, and <laughs> I'm going to cut all this off, and you're going to have to get a real job like the rest of us, not murdering people. If I'd say it that way, I'm going to piss people off unnecessarily. There's no reason to say it that way. Say it the way it needs to be said. They're cannon fodder, and I want to bring them home. Okay, everyone, let's take a quick break for this important message. That time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, 
make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. It always surprises me that conservatives are unable to see the Department of Defense the way they see the Department of Education. Every other department. I mean, let's just say that you think that there's some good being done with some of these wars. I can't see how any Americans benefited from any war in my lifetime, but that's my opinion. But the idea that you're going to send another $50 billion to the Department of Defense, and this is going to make some difference for the average guy that's out there getting shot at in the field. No, it's just like the Department of Education. You don't see more or better teachers or even the ones getting raises. You, you, you see more administrators. You see more waste. You see more corruption. The Department of Defense is no different. Every government department basically runs the same. So that's just always been a mystery to me. And I'm glad that you've had some success with it. The other thing I wanted to ask you about a comment you made about working locally. So I think over the last 20 months or whatever it's been now, Corona hysteria, everyone's starting to get an idea, well, there could be a difference between one state and the other. Fantastically so, yes. Yeah. And good advice I often hear. I mean, I've never run for a public office and I know you ran for for vice president, but in general, if you want to start a political career, you want to start with something small that's a little more winnable. Even the state legislature might be tough your first go around. But what kinds of things can you accomplish in, let's say, becoming town supervisor or involved in your municipal government? What can you do really locally, even inside your state? You can often do more locally than you can do even if so. If we were to magically put, you know, if, if, if we put Tom, if we put you in Congress, it's likely that if instead we put you in as like an auditor in your city or a constable or a city council person, that you'd actually be able to accomplish more there than you could as a member of Congress in, in many ways. So, for example, in the last year since the um, election, one of the big things that I've been working on and, and working with candidates and affiliates across the country is getting more libertarians elected locally. Where we are, you know, I mentioned before, where are we winning? We're winning locally in both partisan and nonpartisan races, but we're winning locally. We're getting libertarians into local offices, which frankly is what needs to be done if we're going to be able to, the vast majority of people are not early adopters. Before they decide to vote for us and put us in the White House, they're gonna to wanna to know that they can trust us in Congress. And before they'll vote for us to put us in Congress, they wanna see that they can trust us in the governor's mansion and the state legislatures. And before many of them are even gonna do that, they're going to want to see what we'll do in their cities and in their mayor's offices and in their county boards and so forth. So 
that's where we need to grow. And it's where we're already growing. It's where even without putting that as our main focus, we were already winning races. So let's put our main focus there. Let's stop making our heroes, the people that we have run for the White House and get somewhere in the margin of error. And uh, let's make our heroes the ones that are winning elections and actually affecting things. So, you know, and and it's been working very well. This year, we, we got almost 200 libertarians elected. We broke every record we've ever had. We won, I think, either 54 or 56% of the races that we uh, had candidates in this year in both the special elections and then the general election in November, we got nearly 60%, like around 55% of the races that we targeted, that we put candidates in. We won those races. And then I had people say to me, well, who cares? It's, you know, auditor and town council and, uh, and constable. Well, constables are the highest law enforcement official in that town or that borough. They can decide how things are done. And the auditor is the one who looks at the books and reports it to the people of, the, of that town. They're able to sit there and look through the books for as many years back as they want and say, yep, they did this, they did that, this person got bribed, this person got paid off, this person you know, did that, and they'll be able to expose all of that. The, I mean, town council, I don't have to tell you what happens there. School board members, we got a bunch of school board members. Well, I don't have to tell you in the age of worrying about what your kids are being taught and whether or not they're going to have to wear a mask, whether or not they're going to get a, a they're going to have to get vaccinated for COVID, even though they don't even get sick from it. You know, whether or not they, you have a choice in what school your kid goes to, what better place to have libertarians than a school board? So this is, and it's where it needs to happen because like I said, long before they're going to trust us in the White House, they want to see what's going to happen in their backyard. And that makes sense, right? If they, if, if they haven't, you know, bought into libertarian ideas like we have, and most people don't. Most people don't follow things based on philosophy. They follow it based on, well, show me. Show me that it works. Okay, well, let's show them. That's where we can win. We have the resources and wherewithal to do so. We're already doing so. And then we can actually show people so that they can go, oh, okay, well, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll vote for you for state rep. I'll vote for you for mayor. I'll vote for you for governor. I'll vote for you for Congress, eventually Senate and president. That's how it works. It's funny because I guess the word that comes to mind with what you're saying here is leverage. Where do you have leverage, right? So if, yes. like you said, if I got elected to Congress and I'm another Ron Paul or Justin Amash, then I could make some fiery speeches and, and mm -hmm. get outvoted 432 to three or whatever, or, yes. or one. Yep. But we, I've had a, a town supervisor from Erie County. I'm in Western New York. So I'm I'm coming to you from the People's Republic of New York, behind the Iron Curtain, as I, I like to say. And um, the Erie County, well, I should say that's old news now. The uh, governor has now put in a statewide mask mandate in late 2021, when we all know that this really does not make a significant difference on the spread of COVID. But I've got county executives and town supervisors within counties that say, look, I've got six policemen and I'm certainly not going to send them out policing masks when people are robbing liquor stores. Okay. So, you know, you could get elected as town supervisor. That's not outside the range of even a guy like me who's never been in politics and you could make a difference like that. And of course, when it's all over and everyone sees that the town that didn't enforce the mask mandate turned out no worse than the, no the different that, than the town next. Yep. Sure. I mean, that's got to start to persuade people that maybe there's something to this freedom thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One big thing is, you know, I, I've talked to people who won races for 
town and, and borough and city and, and county races, their win number, the number of votes they had to get was like 200, 300, maybe 500 votes, which is, I mean, in a, in a small town, that is a lot. But it's not this, you know, I have to get thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. You have to get a few hundred people to vote for you. And if you do the work, if you get, you know, you make a name for yourself in your community, a positive name for yourself in your community, you get involved in community stuff. The people there know who you are. You get out in front of them. You knock on the doors. You hand out leaflets. You do whatever it needs to do to be able to get your message out there. You meet people where they are. You go to their events and talk to them about what concerns them. You can get into office and you can show in ways large and small how liberty works. And you can then grandstand on the success of what you're able to do by saying, imagine how much more I could do if we got other libertarians in here with me so we could do even more. And that's what this next phase is in some of these cities and states where we've you know, got a lot of libertarians elected is the next phase is libertarian majorities, which is what my goal is for 2022 and 2023 coming into 2024, because we can win a ton of these by-elections, take over. We already took over Burnsville, Minnesota and Hanford, California. And the people in those areas are already seeing the positive effects of libertarians running their city government. Let's do that everywhere. Let's do that in places across the country so that people can't ignore it. So they can say, look, libertarians are taking over and they're doing a good job. Maybe we, they should take our state over next. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about what you have coming up right after the new year? It looks like you're pretty busy. What, what kinds of things are you going to be doing? So, so that doesn't even, those are the things that are, are, are confirmed. There's then about that many number of things that are in the works. So the long story short is next year is going to be me traveling to dozens of states to a combination of libertarian conventions, libertarian meetings, groups like Concerned Veterans of America and Americans for Prosperity going in and speaking at their events and, and networking with them to, to get them, more important than me going and giving a speech. If I can go there and get that local AFP group or that local anti-qualified immunity group or that local marijuana decriminalization group or whatever connected with libertarians in that area, right? Getting, getting, you know, actual, you know, local libertarians connected with people who agree with them on a host of issues or even just the one issue. Go, one big thing, especially towards the end of the year, was finding the people, the, you know, like moms against mask mandates in that area and get them connected with local libertarians. So we're going to be doing much more of that. There's a few things that if you had me like a month and a half from now, I could tell you even more because there's all sorts of, there's some really big, exciting things coming, but they're still in the work. So I can't technically say it yet. But if you were, put it this way, if you've been following me and you've been excited by how much more uh, coverage I was able to get this year and libertarians were able to get this year compared to even the election in 2020, stay tuned because 2022 is going to be that big of a leap from 2021. Well, unfortunately, most of the people we live with are not um, committed libertarians yet. What would you say to somebody who, let's say, is a disaffected Democrat Definitely leans a little left, but doesn't think, and I'm not talking about somebody who thinks like, well, they're not socialist enough, but just somebody who might be looking for a different message. Why should they even check out the libertarians? Honestly, this even applies to the people who do say stuff like, you know, I don't like Joe Biden because he's not socialist enough. The reality is people on the left, what is it they're concerned about? Not the caricature, because I come from the Republican Party, okay? So, and, and I'm, and I'm a, you know, I'm a right-leaning libertarian on economics and all of that stuff. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. So I know what it's like. 
I know all the, the tropes about the left, right? I know all the things that we say about them, right? But what is it that they really, when a, when a left winger wakes up in the morning or even a, a center left progressive, they don't wake up and go, hmm, what power can I give to the government to use against me because I'm a <laughs> useful idiot? Like they, they don't say that, right? What they wake up, what they're concerned about are the poor and the marginalized, the people that are being the most acutely harmed by government. So are we. They're worried about the fact that they're seeing, they call it inequality or inequity. But what they're really saying, they're not worried that every single person isn't exactly as wealthy as every other person. What they're seeing is that the poor are getting poorer and everyone else is mostly just stagnating and actually slowly getting poorer as well, except for this very small handful of incredibly powerful people who seem to be gaming the system. They're right. And that is something to be worried about. The problem isn't inequity or inequality. The problem is that we're playing a game of monopoly and there's a handful of people that control how much, who gets what monopoly dollars, right? So they come from a place that they worried about. Interestingly enough, you know, conservatives often talk about, you know, making government smaller and, and fighting against tyranny. But then when the actual tyranny happens, they want to back the blue. Progressives recognize in the reverse way, they want government to you know, have all this control, but yet they recognize that the way that's often enforced is very, very abusive, very, very harmful, and usually the most abusive towards the people who have the least means to fight back against it. So do we. So what I do is when I'm meeting with people that are on the left, I tell them, listen, you're right about this. 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 And this is why we don't think the people who created this situation are the ones we want to give any more power to. And here are our plans to address those things. And, you know, again, it, it's every single person's not going to go, oh my gosh, Spike, I am a libertarian just because you said that. But I'm at least planting seeds. And some of them do say, Oh wow, am I a libertarian? That it was funny. I, I went and spoke at a, uh, a actual perfect example of what you're talking about. A group called Women's Voices of Southwest Florida. I'm not even 100. I think it was a libertarian in that area of Florida that told them they should reach out to me because they're they're in Manatee County, Florida, and their county council wanted to pass a bill that was a county level version of the SB8 abortion bill in Texas, the the snitch bill. And, and so I'm not sure how they got my information, but they, they had me come and I, I spoke at, uh, first I spoke on a, a live stream they did. And then based on that, they asked if I could come down and speak to their county council. And I said, okay, that's fine. And now this was a very, very left-leaning group. And I told them, I said, listen, I'm not a fan of abortion. I just recognize government's not the way to handle it. And this bill is way bigger than abortion. This bill is about destroying any kind of limitations on government's power at all. And I, it, the first thing I did was I went to their county board and I talked to them about why they should oppose this bill. And we killed the bill. It was four to three yes when I got there and it ended up being five to two no when, by the time I left. But in having conversations with the, 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 the mostly it was women, there were a couple guys too, with the folks that were there with, with women's voices. And I was talking to them and I kept hearing them say, Oh no, am I a libertarian too? Because they were asking me my thoughts on healthcare, on gun control, on all these other issues. And I tell them, but it came from the perspective of, again, meeting them where they are. I agree with you that too much power in the hands of too few people leads to harmful and abusive and inequitable outcomes. I agree with you that things shouldn't be this way and that we need to take power back for the people. And the last way to do that 
is to give more power to the people who took the power and the money and the freedom and decision-making ability from us in the first place. Here's what libertarians propose. And when you when you remove the, the, the back and forth, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat nonsense, and get to the meat of what the actual issue is and our solutions to that, that coupled with empathizing with people and, and, and starting with where you agree is, I find it's very, very effective in bringing people over. I want to ask you the same question about conservatives, but before I do, there's one follow-up, which to me kind of goes back to some of my own work on conservatism and, and liberalism. Is there a fundamental problem, though, with the left that at the end of the day, the liberal or socialist philosophy is based on a fundamental mistrust of private property, which for us, the foundation of liberty is self-ownership from there, the ownership of your labor and the fruits of your labor. Are we going to run into an impasse sooner or later? Or is it a matter that, look, nobody ever gets everything they want and we can still win with people somewhat on our side? Well, I, I think it could possibly be both of those things. And keep in mind when you, when I, you know, the left, that's the ideology. That's the idea. And yes, the, you know, Marxism, I guess, would be the, the furthest to the left, like, you know, the Marxist philosophy, which, again, there are a lot of things we agree with with Marxists. We just diverge when it comes to they believe that private property is an extension of the state, whereas we believe that private property is the justly acquired property that is an extension of our labor. And therefore, as we have every bit of a right to it as we do to our own labor. We If we own our labor, then we own the fruits of our labor as well, which is our property, right? So, but even there, there's some agreement before we get to that point. But that's the ideology. The average person who calls themselves a left-winger or a Democrat or a progressive or even a Marxist, they really are just worried about these things. And we can get a lot of them. In the same way that, you know, a lot of people on the right you know, they might talk a big game about, you know, what otherwise what we would call authoritarianism. But the reality is they just want government out of their business as well. So, yes, there's a, a fundamental disagreement between libertarianism and any wing of authoritarianism. Right. Like socialism, fascism, communism, any of these these, you know, authoritarianisms, we're going to have fundamental disagreements with. That doesn't mean that we can't meet people where they are who, you know, at least for now, align themselves with these beliefs. And yes, we're going to have to make allies with people who don't agree with us on everything. And that's good. That's how things are won. I'm not waiting for everyone to become a libertarian before I can pass the Second Amendment sanctuary state bill in my state. I'll work with conservatives all day long. In the same token, if I can work with progressives and end qualified immunity like we're doing in Ohio, I'll do that all day long. We, you know, we're, we're going to have to have allies that don't agree with us 100%. And when we're already working with them on that, what better segue for us to talk with them about other issues using this thing we agree on as the starting point? So I know what people are saying right now, at least some of my own listeners. There you go, Mullen. Now you're right with the Libertarian Party signaling to the left. What about the right? <laughs> Why should a conservative, and I've written this many times, I believe that Trump and the MAGA movement, that's real conservatism. The kind of hostility towards uh, laissez-faire markets, the tariffs, that's traditional conservatism. Yes. That's Hamilton. That's Lincoln. That's where they were right up until FDR when they said, oh, we got to start 
bring in these. We're against big government now. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. 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 So how, for somebody who's bought into that and they're hardcore MAGA, why should they give the uh, libertarians a chance? So it, it was interesting when you were saying that about this is actual traditional classical conservatism. You know, I, I believe it was Hayek who wrote his essay on why I don't consider myself a conservative. And I remember when I first read that, I still consider myself a conservative. And I read it and I went, that's not what conservatism is. And then I looked and I'm like, oh, no, that's, oh, wow, that is. Or I said, that's what neoconservative is. But then when they started talking about, you know, the objections to migration and trade, and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, that is us. Isn't it? And then, and so, but, so what do we have to offer conservatives? Well, I can tell you as a former conservative, I wanted government out of my life. And for some reason, I had been conned into believing that the only way that government could get out of my life was for it to be heavily involved in the lives of the bad people, the terrorists overseas and all those terrible people who live in the same country as them and the, the thugs on the streets that are going to, you know, take away our freedoms if the, the police aren't there to bash their heads in first. You know, uh, it was the immigrants are going to come and they're going to take our jobs and they're going to do terrible things to our women and children. And then they're going to live on welfare while also taking our jobs, which even then I never fully got. But all of that was based on them leveraging my resentment and my fear. But all of my resentment and my fear was coming from stuff that government was doing, government and its cronies were doing. So my, what I would say to the average conservative out there is, you're right. The elites are out to get you, and they're gaming the system to hurt you. And the last people that we should trust to protect you are the people who are doing that. So it's it's shocking how similar the message to hardcore conservatives and hardcore progressives is, which is, yeah, the bad guys are doing stuff to you. And guess what? They're the ones in power. So every time you try to give government more power, more authority, more money, more control, you're giving it to them. You're listening to this fox who's telling you he's going to protect you from this fox. But the reality is the hens need to come together and kick the foxes out or else it's going to keep going that way. So the message is the same, but just geared towards what their concerns are, because they're not as concerned for the poor and the marginalized. They're more concerned about, it's more of a, of a, of a self and immediate community. So like myself, my family, my neighborhood, as opposed to like this vague concept of the marginalized or the poor. But there's so much overlap even there, because if you hear a progressive talk about a person of color or a homeless person, the language is almost identical to what, you know, a conservative would say about a poor working stiff, you know, blue collar worker or a farmer or something like that. It's almost identical. And for the most part, they're right. They're just, their way of fixing it, which is to give more power to the people who created that mess, is the wrong way of doing it, obviously. But their concerns are often in the right place. They're just misdirected. Well, I guess we could talk all day, especially in the philosophical part, because I think there are the people who have the instincts to do protectionism, tariffs, th those kinds of things. There's also the free market types who somehow or other convince themselves that the Republican Party is a free market party. And of course, there was a lot of rhetoric about that to attract all the disaffected classical liberals in the 20th century when the, oh, yeah. the Democrats kind of left that reservation and went to another one. But I, I guess what I would say, too, is 
if you're a person out there who generally believes in limited government and free markets, that's not conservatism. You're a classical liberal if you're not a hardcore libertarian. And uh, the Republican Party is moving away from that. The Libertarian Party, while it may have some anarchists like Spike and I, it, it is a political party that's looking to govern through really classical liberal libertarian principles that didn't do so badly in this uh, time called the 19th century when America went from a destitute agrarian nation to the richest in the world. I mean, it's got a pretty good track record. So uh, Spike, what, where can people go to find out more about you and when you might be coming to their town? So if they go to spikecohen.com, that key, that has a pretty well updated uh, list of the events that I have moving forward. And if I'm in your area, come on out. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to hang out with you. And you'll know if you come out, you will find that my favorite thing is Q&A. My favorite thing is answering the questions of the people, not just like a standard Q&A where I stand up in front of everyone and they ask me questions, but one-on-one -on -one where just people can come up and ask me stuff. That's why I come out. I mean, uh, there's nothing groundbreaking I'm going to say in a five or 10 minute speech. I might get you worked up and, you know, do some rabble rousing, but I'd much rather answer questions you have. So come on, out love to meet you i do have some shows on tuesdays and wednesdays live at 8 p.m eastern those are on muddied waters media those are on all social media platforms and all podcasting platforms they're also on muddiedwatersmedia.com and if you want to follow me personally and my you know political exploits across the country you can follow me on spike cohen i'm on facebook i'm on youtube i'm on twitter i'm on instagram i'm on tiktok for the kids and uh, and again my website is spike cohen and I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. And I want to thank you for the work you're doing. As I always say, that's all we do is talk freedom on my show. But we talk to people who are actually out there doing something about it. So everybody go to SpikeCohen.com. Check out Spike's schedule. And if you get a chance, get out and, uh, and meet him and ask him any question you want. That's what he's there for. Spike, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it, man. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at tommullentalksfreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.